US President Joe Biden has a complicated relationship with the solar industry. There's huge growth in the US and UK energy storage markets, and the IPCC report highlights the drastic need for everything to go further and faster. All this and much more in the August episode of the Solar Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Sony Media Podcast, starring me, Liam Stoker, and joining me, as ever, is Andy Colthorpe. Andy, how are you? Uh, yeah, pretty good, thanks. Pretty good. Uh, trying to keep my eye off the global news, uh, <laughs> but uh, as a journalist, it's not that easy to do that. But yeah, yeah, all things told, me personally, pretty good, thanks. Good stuff, good stuff. But yeah, I, I guess coming from Japan, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you how the olympics were even if they were pretty much at arm's length yeah pretty good pretty good uh, i mean there was a lot of um obviously a lot of discussion that people here didn't really want the olympics to go ahead with the you know obviously the ongoing covid situation uh but i feel like once they got started uh people pretty much you know enjoyed watching the coverage of it and uh yeah good i mean i was disappointed personally that the japanese uh, soccer team uh didn't get to the final or didn't even win a medal uh yeah all told it was pretty entertaining uh, i really loved seeing the skateboarding and the bmx uh it was something to do really in these in these troubled times i suppose a bit of a distraction i guess um and you know my every four years or every five years now Refresher course into the very uh, various magnificent national flags and anthems of the world. How how was it from your point of view? I guess time difference made it a tricky one to watch live. I guess. Yeah, we we couldn't so much watch it live, although kind of in the UK you, you kind of woke up stuck what would have ordinarily been the news on, but then you're you're met with like you say a, a vast array of different sports, whether it be some diving, some dressage, some... Uh, I was quite impressed by the competitive climbing, which I think is... Well, I know it's a new addition to this Olympics, but, I mean, that is just incredible to watch. Really awesome, isn't it? I actually uh, had a bit of a go at not a competitive climbing, but I had a, a bit of a climb on an indoor wall. And, uh, yes, I can report back, it is extremely difficult. <laughs> Uh, a lot of fun though definitely gonna go back there but you know uh just just back on on the uh on topic i guess for a little bit the 2028 los angeles olympics yeah um are earmarked to be the first full net zero uh olympics so be really interesting to see and the next one between now and then is paris in 2024 where obviously what we hope will be landmark climate agreements were arrived at so it will be interesting to see if the usually uh, quite energy intensive endeavour that I believe the Olympics to be, especially with crowds going to be there, we hope, uh, how that's going to come about. So, yeah, look forward to seeing sort of the mechanics of how that will be done, really, I guess, uh, in quite a nerdy way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've, I've actually written this is six years ago, kind of one of the first, the very first things I wrote for a Sony media title was looking at the problems of installing solar on um, sporting stadiums, which okay. is less glamorous than uh, it sounds there. Essentially, it's just a weight issue, but uh, 
There we go. Um, I think if we can kind of take people people back to Los Angeles, back to the US, um, we can really dive into what has captured a lot of our attention in the last, certainly the last fortnight, um, from a clean energy perspective. And that's the sheer acceleration of um, climate policy or at least policy relating to energy infrastructure, solar, energy storage, and everything in between that. Um, that we've seen, well, the last certainly the last fortnight, and pretty much as the Biden administration really starts to shift gear with with a lot of its policy agenda. So we've obviously had the bipartisan infrastructure bill recently pass. Um, certainly a watered down version of, of what was initially expected from that particular bill. Um, so. Huge amounts of, of funding. I think it's $1.2, $1.3 trillion uh, earmarked for various infrastructure projects in the US, pretty much aimed at roads, bridges, um, and other kind of really tangible infrastructure. Um, but it does include um, several billion dollars that have been earmarked for energy infrastructure, which kind of, from from certainly from a renewables perspective, um, is a little bit limited towards um, hard, hard wires, pylons, all the kind of green infrastructure that you would expect. What's yeah. not included in it is probably more of a subject of interest to us, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the, the grid infrastructure upgrade stuff, I believe there's something like $73 billion uh, towards various pieces of grid infrastructure upgrades, including $3 billion towards resiliency, and, you know, various amounts for, for other aspects uh, within that. So, I mean, although it is, as you say, not directly renewable energy related, it is kind of about building a more resilient grid that is kind of fit for the 21st century. So, you know, certainly part of that is integrating uh, renewable energy. Um, but, yeah, so there have been, as you say, a couple of notable emissions from it um, that, were kind of met with a slightly mixed response, I guess, from the clean energy sector. Uh, the prime one being the omission as yet of the uh, invest investment tax credit uh, for standalone energy storage uh, and also uh, missed the chance to extend the investment tax credit for solar, I believe. Yeah, so that's probably the, the big omission which everyone, certainly in the solar and storage sectors, were, were looking at. Um, that's now been shifted to the budget reconciliation uh, bill. It's a slightly different bill structure. Obviously, welding it into how the budget is set um, is perceived to be a bit of a fast track. So if it was in a standalone bill, it would obviously be subject to votes in both the Senate um, and beyond. Um, and that would allow more debate and more room for Republicans to kind of veto the entire the, um, the entire bill and ruin the prospects for that extension. By bringing it into the budget, it's more difficult for the Republicans to do that. Having said that, it hasn't been without its complications quite early on. Um, so within that hour, I think, of the, of the bipartisan infrastructure bill passing, the Democrats kick-started this process of setting the budget, reconciliation, and um, opening the debate for this. 
one of the big amendments which we are now looking at um, was tabled by um, the Alaskan senator, uh, Republican called Dan Sullivan. That amendment, in very, very kind of stark, simple language, would prohibit any renewable energy project which is using technology, material or mineral uh, manufactured in China from claiming federal funds or subsidies, which would include the investment tax credit. So in kind of strict layman terms, if you own a renewable energy project and you are sourcing components from China, you would be forbidden from claiming investment tax credit on that project. It's sorry, go on, Andy. I was going to say, so this is largely going back to what we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, which was that the, you know, the import of polysilicon primarily uh, from China uh, and in particular, the what was raised was the concerns of forced labor um, in uh, uh, was Xinjiang province, I believe Um, that was basically leading the US to to put, you know, to consider various forms of uh, sanctions or at least preventing uh, these products from going into the US market. And obviously, as we all know, uh, the vast, 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 vast majority of solar products are made in China. And I think, as you explained uh, really well in the last episode, uh, you know, a very decent percentage of polysilicon that's used in a lot of the solar projects around the world uh, comes from that region or has passed through that region for some form of processing at some point. Yeah, exactly. It, it It's seen as like a, a bit of an extension of the withhold release order or certainly the moves around forced labor um it would be far more or far further reaching than the existing uh wro in terms in terms of the 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 reach of it so the the actual text of the amendment is very very simple it's just anything from china if you use it you can't claim itcs Whereas the the text of the withhold and release order, which was passed in late June, very much targeted specific companies rather than any kind of particular region. So it was Hoshine Silicon Industry and its subsidiaries that the withhold release order really, really well, specifically named. Um, we've since seen some action on that WRO. Um, so reports are this week um, that the first kind of module or material module shipments have have started to be detained by US customs officials. Um, That would be a considerable ramp up. Obviously, it's been in that WRO has been in place for the best part of six weeks now, um, or six, seven weeks, actually. Um, So we're now starting to see those modules starting to be detained. It's going to be certainly interesting to watch how that progresses. At the moment, we've only really heard of three particular module manufacturers having had modules detained. Um, Jinko Soda have had or are alleged to have had some quite sizable module um, shipments detained, whereas both Trina Soda and Canadian Soda um, have had kind of sample modules detained at the border that was that was kind of being distributed to internal offices rather than any prospective client. Um, it's worth noting that those manu- uh, manufacturers aren't commenting on the issue at the moment. 
Um, neither are the Department of Commerce or the US Customs and Border Protection. Um, so we contacted all of those parties in, in response to the story, um, and the, those parties have either declined to comment or have not responded as um, at the time of um, certainly this record, at least. It, it kind of contributes to this weird relationship that I think Biden's going to have to navigate really delicately because on the one hand you have certainly a lot of political pressure on the Biden administration to really ramp up um, domestic manufacturing in the US. So there's obviously a, a key strategic industry moving forward. There's a lot of push for um, project or manufacturing to come into the US and support US made jobs. Hence, a lot of the Biden language um, since his election has been made in America by American. Um, as a result, that's obviously ramping up a lot of rhetoric around trade disputes with China. Um, and also this week, we've seen the first petitions launched um, targeting alleged circumvention of the existing um, anti-dumping duties by Chinese manufacturers using um, Southeast Asian entities, so particularly Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. That has been lodged by a or on behalf of a coalition of US soda manufacturers. They haven't revealed any identities of these companies yet, um, but they are being uh, represented by uh, a law firm uh, called Wiley, who were general counsel for Soda World in the previous Section 201 case. So really well versed in those kind of soda trade disputes and, and everything that, that's happened in, well, certainly in, in relation to the Section 201. So chances are that they have a, a good level of confidence that this is going to kind of push forward. So on the one hand, you have that whole rhetoric around trade and incentivizing domestic soda manufacturing. On the other, you have Biden kind of campaign for the election on this ticket of we're going to sort decarbonization out, we're going to set net zero agendas, and we're going to really push for clean energy. To do so, soda is going to have to play a major role. And again, also published this week, which has meant kind of but well, pushed a lot of, uh, of, of certainly our workload across the news desk onto the US market. Um, the US Department of Energy has published this brief, which essentially states that they want to push solar to something towards 40% of power demand in the US by 2035. Currently, it's at 3%. So you're going to need hundreds and hundreds of gigawatts of solar deployed over the next decade. That comes after analysis from Wood Mackenzie and the Solar Energy Industries Association in the US, which expects up to 300 gigawatts to be deployed in the US this decade. So you're going to need 300 gigawatts, or you're going to need to source 300 gigawatts of module somewhere to save that demand. It's fair to say that if you are all but prohibiting the import of certain modules, whilst restricting a fair chunk, well, some upwards of 90% of the market from claiming ITCs, which could further impact project economics, it's going to be very difficult to meet those targets without a, a really significant ramp up of domestic soda manufacturing. Um, 
at the moment, I think the figures cited in the um, Department of Energy's brief today suggests that there is two gigawatts of thin film capacity and an extra three gigawatts of um, silicon semiconductor based module assembly in the US. So roughly five gigawatts. First Soda have uh, this week broken ground on the additional 3.3 gigawatts in Ohio. That takes it to kind of, if we just say kind of nine, 10 gigawatts, that's not going to be operational until 2023. Again, you're, you're going to need a real ramp up of domestic manufacturing and it's whether or not the Biden administration can really push that forward, whether that's through a soda manufacturing tax credit, which brings in a lot of manufacturers and re-incentivizes the polysilicon manufacturing um, in the US from the likes of Rex Silicon. It, it remains to be seen how successful that could be. Also, is that kind of tax credit going to pass through the Senate anyway? It's it's, it's just a, a real balancing act. And there's many, many plates here that Biden's going to have to spin and it remains to be seen whether that can come off. I mean, it's kind of difficult to separate sort of the two issues to an extent insofar as, you know, they've had these trade disputes before. Uh, tariffs are still in place from, you know, from going back years now, uh, from when originally, uh, you know, from anti-dumping. So it's basically with modules being made so cheaply in China that they were undercutting uh, markets uh, for manufacturing uh, in Europe and the US. And basically that put a stop to manufacturing primarily in Germany, in, in Europe uh, and in, uh, in the Americas. Um, now you've kind of got this uh, whole question around the forced labor. And I mean, I do take that the forced labor is a major point of it, but I think independent of that, there seems to be a view that the US and Europe should be kind of producing their own equipment. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but um, Jenny Chase, who I think is, you know, pretty much everyone's favorite outspoken solar analyst, uh, certainly via Twitter, and, you know, she's, she's worked with us on a few of our events, uh, has been sending out some tweets about this. So I don't know if you saw that uh, today, but it was the, Jenny was saying that the EU and the US are saying, uh, we want to have a domestic solar manufacturing industry. Uh, but then she says that from the point of view of solar analysts who have spent years covering bankruptcies, bad debts, heavy losses, factory obsolescence and dodgy spin outs in the ever changing roster of biggest solar manufacturers would say, but why? So I think what Jenny's saying is that, you know, it can be quite a thankless task to produce, uh, you know, what is an increasingly low cost commodity. Uh, on which, you know, the main competition has been price. Um, but, you know, again, I, I do take the point that um, if things are being made with forced labour, then, you know, th that is a kind of competition that that we shouldn't, you know, rightly shouldn't want to get involved with. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting to see. Um, I mean, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I can't really speak for the solar side of things, but that does really look to support manufacturing um, and technology innovation within energy storage uh, and batteries. And I think partly, as we said before, that's a lot to do with batteries being used for electric vehicles. You know, electrification of transport is, is still a really big thing. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see that both 
batteries and solar. Uh, it seems increasingly the EU and the US want to have their own uh, manufacturing bases, and it's really set to play out over the next few years uh, whether or not they'll be successful with that. So, I mean, we had just this uh, just this month rather uh, the announcement of what is intended to be the first US owned. Uh, lithium-ion battery gigafactory, uh, which is from Core Power, uh, will be a 12 gigawatt hour facility, uh, and they selected the city of Buckeye, Arizona, uh, for that site. So they're welcomed in with with open arms, um, and you know, so that, there was that. And then also this week uh, was quite an interesting one because we saw an announcement from uh, the energy storage system integrator and manufacturer, Power and Energy. Uh, that it signed a multi-gigawatt uh, supply deal with Eve Energy, which is a uh, you know very reputable Chinese uh, lithium battery manufacturer, um, and that's for going into Eve's. So Power and Energy has a master supply deal with CATL, which is I think China's one of China's biggest lithium manufacturers, and certainly the biggest manufacturer of lithium-ion phosphate large format battery cells of the types that are used in energy storage systems, including Powins. Um, and Powin have other vendors too, but they basically cited supply constraints um, and said, well, they kind of implied that, but yeah, um, clearly there are supply constraints within the industry as um, as Powin Executive Vice President uh, Danny Liu told me. Um, and so close to 500 megawatts of battery, megawatt hours rather, of battery energy storage systems for power and, uh, will be equipped with EVE cells uh, just during this year. Uh, but what's interesting is that I did ask um, Danny Liu what he thought in terms of the dynamics of the uh, battery energy storage um, manufacturing supply chain uh, today and obviously the as I say the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, and other measures uh, do seek to create domestic supply chains uh, for lithium-ion batteries and and Danny said that you know Powin Energy is keen to see a greater supply chain uh, robustness uh, materializing in the U.S. Uh, with at the moment the main production centers uh, globally are focused in China for everything from raw materials. Uh, to processing um, and manufacturing. And, and Danny said that the lack of mature upstream component suppliers uh, makes competitively priced US-based US production of uh, LFP, lithium-ion phosphate battery cells, uh, difficult to source, but Powin is actively in discussions uh, with cell vendors to, as he said, convince them to move facilities to the US or to expand upon their current US-based facilities to provide LFP cells. Um, however, as with solar, um, perhaps the unknown factor is what percentage of premium uh, customers would be willing to pay uh, for US-made products. And so, you know, I think the if it's constrained and price com competition-wise difficult to get lithium-ion batteries, which are a much newer thing, um, you know, I can only think that it's going to be a, a lot more pronounced uh, in, in solar energy, I guess. I think, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. Um, and just to really hop back on what Jenny said around um, why why would you want to do this, given the track record of of some of these companies, I, I think that's exactly true. Um, 
there's I mean you've only got to look so far as the US Department of Energy's loans program that obviously supported both Tesla which has gone on to do really really great things and become economical in its own right but equally it did support Solyndra which collapsed kind of spectacularly not long after it it kind of pocketed that loan um and the Obama administration was pilloried for that and continues to be held in contempt of how much or a perceived um, lack of responsibility for support or choosing to support that industry. There's no guarantee then that the US government could establish these manufacturing tax credits for both solar storage, everything else in between that's going to be clean energy. There's no guarantee that just having that government-backed incentive is going to create a a profitable, sensible business environment rather than fostering a kind of com- a competitive environment that just ends up with the US competing for price on um, on China and, and, and a bit of a state-backed race to the bottom, for want of a better word. But it certainly draws into kind of stark kind of comparison at least, the, this kind of dichotomy between of this broader, more imperative sense of duty to decarbonize against the political will and the political capital that you can quickly burn up in chasing those kind of targets. And I think something which we haven't really spoken about and then we're not due to speak about, but is worth mentioning, the IPCC report, which also came out recently, really does hammer home the need to act with a far greater urgency and a far greater sense of collaboration, not just across industry, but on the global perspective. And I think we'll see a lot more of that mentioned as we kind of approach COP26 in November as well. I think there's a quite an interesting, you know, if, if you're kind of a, a journalist like we are and for, following the narrative arc, I guess, um, quite an interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on one point in that Solyndra was, did only represent one eightieth of the sure. loans given through the Department of Energy Loans Program Office. Sure, so, it's more more it's more a case of obviously that it, obviously you re- that representing one eightieth, yeah. but is picked upon by all critics of that program. Definitely, definitely. No, that's that is true. It was a very prominent example. Let's say of trying to prop. I mean, the thing. Okay, let's not go into the Solyndra thing, but you know, by all accounts, it was a, a great product that was kind of over-engineered, yeah. unable to mass produce. But you know, what's quite interesting is that at the time of the anti-dumping um, original uh, tariff wars, you know, that went on, um, Jigger Shah, the you know noted clean energy entrepreneur, founder of Sun Edison, which at the time was the the world's biggest developer of solar, um, was also uh, prominent in the, uh, I believe it was called the Coalition for uh, Affordable Solar Energy, uh, which was, you know, a US group that basically argued, along with many others, um, that, you know, if you put the stop to uh, modules made in China going into the US, then something like 70% of the US solar industry would, would, you know, kind of collapse, basically. Um, and, you know, what's kind of brings that full circle here, I guess, uh, is that Jigger is now the um, head of the loans program office. So exactly. I think it's kind of a, an interesting circularity. Um, and he's now got, you know, a $40 billion budget over the next four years um, to uh, to lend, not spend, as he sees fit. Uh, but also it does 
kind of draw your attention back to the fact that, you know, we are talking about hopefully an administration that is putting in some pretty smart people uh, willing to look at both sides. Um, and, you know, even just the fact that in, in these days when we hear so much that the uh, the world is a divided place and, and certainly in US politics, that's, that's completely true. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is exactly that, you know, it did require a huge amount of compromise that I think a lot of us would rather not have seen, but it did go through um, eventually with, you know, support from both sides um, of the political aisle in the US. So, yeah, let's hope that this isn't a sudden and stark end uh, to A, the story um, in terms of, uh, you know, the solar energy and clean energy industries, uh, but also, as you say, with the IPC report, IPCC report, uh, the end of the world. Let's let's hope it's it's not that coming sooner rather than later. I think you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think on that cheery note of the end of the world through climate abandon, um, I think it's time for us to take a quick break. Certainly need one. PV Tech has been the world's leading source of solar news and opinion for more than a decade, but now PV Tech Premium goes one stop further giving you business-critical insights developed to empower decision-making throughout the solar value chain. For just $249 per year, you can receive exclusive insights, analysis and interviews, while also accessing our comprehensive back catalogue of technical papers and a host of other benefits. Head on over to PV Tech to find out more. And welcome back to the August episode of the Sony Media Podcast with me, Liam Stoker, um, and Andy Colthorpe. Andy, we ended the last half of the podcast on, on a bit of a sour note, um, but there's much, much better news for energy storage deployment, especially in the US. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, you know, obviously you have to all take this in the context that uh, we are racing against the clock uh, in terms of climate change. Um, that is on people out there to put as much pressure on policymakers, corporations uh, to do their bit, you know. Um, but at the same time, uh, as you say, there is stuff happening and it's not all bad. So we just had a couple of days ago uh, from the US Department of Energy's um, Energy Information Administration, uh, which collates you know, a huge amount of data across all energy sectors um, in the US. Uh, and it found, so it's just published a report uh, called, uh, which you can get actually for free online. It's called Battery Storage in the United States, uh, an update on market trends. Um, and, you know, some of the, it's a really big document, as you would expect. So I'm only able to pull out some of the key findings from it for a uh, news story that I did this week. But, uh, you know, the cost of battery energy storage uh, for energy capacity in the US uh, fell by 72% in the four years between 2015 and, and 2019, uh, which, you know, can only be a driver for greater capacities of, of energy storage. Um, and utilities or rather developers um, are planning to add to utility grids uh, 10,000 megawatts of new grid connected capacity uh, between now and 2023. So that's a huge amount. So at the moment, the US is on uh, about 1.65, uh, sorry, 
1,650 megawatts of battery storage connected to the grid but as of the end of 2020. Uh, it's already grown since then. Uh, but that was a jump of uh, you know ten more than tenfold from 2012 when there was only 100 megawatts. And then if you think from 20, the end of 2020 to 2023, it's nearly another tenfold increase. So it's really going great guns. It's really, really, really kicking off now. Um, and uh, it's kind of phenomenal to see. Um, and, you know, so much fascinating data in, in that uh, report. It's one of those news stories where I kind of just wanted to keep reading the report, uh, but obviously I had to work to a deadline and get it written up. Um, but, you know, so the installed base uh, from... Are you cursing me for setting your deadlines now? Absolutely not. No, no, no. I'm just cursing, cursing having to work for a living. But, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy uh, with that. So, yeah, so, so, so really, I mean, I'm not even sure which of these trends are going to be worth cherry picking for this podcast. But, you know, it's a thousand percent increase from 2019 uh, till 2023. Um, things that won't surprise people are that California uh, leads among states and will host about 40 percent of that new capacity. Um, but there are also projects expected to come online in a variety of other states. Um so it includes states that have energy storage targets like New York and Massachusetts, uh, and then states that don't like uh, Texas, uh, Arizona, um, and Nevada. So really interesting. So one other thing that kind of harks back to what we were talking about uh, with the ITC earlier on is that they're by far the majority of new um, battery storage is going to be directly paired with uh, solar PV plants. So between now and 2023, uh, there's about 100 large-scale PV plants with battery storage, uh, representing about 7.6 gigawatts of capacity are planned, uh, as opposed to just 59 standalone energy storage plants, uh, representing just over uh, 3 uh, gigawatts uh, of capacity. So. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, there's a lot of dynamics behind this, and we're lucky that for the forthcoming edition of PV Tech Power, which is out in a week or two, uh, we've got uh, an expert uh, researcher from Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory uh, called Will Gorman, uh, writing about the, you know, the phenomenal rise of not just solar plus storage, but also wind plus storage. Um, and the, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, so uh, storage can be a real plus for PV, um, you know, no pun intended there, but it can basically, you know, use it to store, use the batteries to store energy at times of abundant generation and low electricity prices, and then put it to the grid when it's most needed, when demand peaks and so do electricity prices. So it actually works better for solar than it does for wind because the generation patterns of PV are you know, a bit more predictable than wind. Um, but also an interesting driver behind this uh, co-location trend um, is that co-located battery storage that charges at least 75% of the time from their paired solar or wind resource are eligible for the for tax credits, sure. uh, which can be worth about 30% of the capital cost um, of an energy, uh, of, well, of a hybrid resource project really I guess um, so that can be considered a strong driver of the trend towards co-location uh, but it's not 
always uh, the best value uh, to do that. So you might have solar or wind in areas that have high radiance, obviously, um, large amount of wind, and in the case of solar, uh, quite a lot of available land. Now, that land might not be located in a place where the, uh, let's say, the grid congestion um, or the, the need to balance the grid is as pronounced as it might be nearer to, say, an urban area where the demand for energy is actually coming from. So in that case, it might be more valuable um, in terms of location to put the battery storage nearer to the uh, where the demand is and keep the solar where it is. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. And, you know, I hope, I uh, really look forward to seeing uh, Will Gorman's uh, article published in, uh, in PV Tech Power. And I think that's a really interesting debate that will go on. So, so I mean, it's another argument really for introducing a tax credit for standalone battery storage, because it would mean that, you know, projects will go ahead based on where they work best, as opposed to where they work kind of in a slightly distorted uh, economic, um, what's the word, economic dynamic, I guess. So yeah, so some really interesting stuff there. Basically, you've got a massive amount of energy storage coming online in the US in the next few years. Uh, albeit by 2050, um, it's going to need to have something like 235 gigawatt hours of battery storage uh, for, and 59 gigawatts. So that's kind of increasing uh, duration of storage, so storing energy for you know, longer periods of time so you can use more and more renewables and have a more reliable power system. So it's still a mountain to climb, um, but you know steps are being taken, uh, which I think is pretty encouraging. Um, and you know what's quite fun, uh, if we're allowed to do fun when we've set such an apocalyptic tone, <laughs> is that yeah. the, uh, in fact, the, uh, the humble uh, little old UK uh, is actually not that far off in terms of deployment figures. Uh, from the US as it stands at the moment. I think the UK is on something like 1.3 gigawatts. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's fair to say the UK's had a bit of a head start as well. It's, it's, it's kind of really a, was an earlier, well, certainly an early promoter of utility scale energy storage. Hugely, yeah. I mean, the, the UK and the US both started around 2015, 2016. Um, but that said, you know, I think um, Europe is kind of fallen behind in that respect um partly partly because the uk being an island nation actually needs the energy storage more urgently um but also you know there's a lot of other dynamics in there that the uh the so the europe is a lot more interconnected and you know energy can be shared across territories which makes it less urgent at lower levels of renewable penetration to have storage um but obviously as those levels increase uh, you're going to need it. And so Europe is kind of starting to make some moves. Uh, we had some really interesting projects announced over the last few weeks. Um, there's a utility, uh, I think it's RWE, um, is going to add battery storage to two um, hydroelectric power plants, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, RTE, the grid operator in France, is starting a um, virtual transmission line project where basically energy storage will be used uh, to boost the uh, amount of power that can be delivered uh, around the country. Um, but at the same time, 
Um, yeah, I mean, UK is 1.3 gigawatts. Uh, I'm not sure that Europe's even up to a gigawatt yet. Um, I know that America broke the one gigawatt mark in 2019, and Europe is kind of far behind because it doesn't have, uh, firstly, the conditions that, that require storage so urgently, um, but also it doesn't have market structures um, that the UK has. So yeah, so our analyst, uh, Molly McCorkindale, who is with Solar Media Market Research, who's obviously part of the publishing group that we're also a part of, uh, wrote a blog for the site um, a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that discusses that the utility scale battery storage pipeline is now over 20 gigawatts um, across more than 800 projects. And there's been a recent surge in submitted applications for battery storage. Uh, so Q2 2021, um, was a record-breaking uh, quarter for uh, submitted capacity uh, to you know planning and permitting uh, regime. So, 3.7 gigawatts across 60 sites uh, was submitted. Now, okay, that's got we've got to heavily caveat that by saying that it's kind of like interconnection queues in the US, uh, sure. or even if we're being unkind project pipelines that are claimed by uh, developers and, and you know, manufacturers uh, within, well, within any industry, really. Uh, so that is to say only a portion of that pipeline actually gets built. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, you know, shows great leaps, really. Um, and, you know, from Q, from certainly from 2016, when the Enhanced frequency response tender really kickstarted the market in the UK after a year or two of small pilot projects. Uh, the UK is really pushing on, um, and so yeah, getting getting to be a really interesting space. Uh, what's really different, I think, just the last point on this from me for now, because I feel like I waffled a little bit and just got got a, got ahead of myself with excitement really, but. The one interesting dynamic is that the duration of energy storage projects in the UK is still much smaller uh, in general per project, I think. This isn't Molly's analysis, by the way. This is just my reading from the from the press releases and news coverage we've seen. Um, UK projects tend to be at most two-hour duration, whereas in the US, and still tend to be largely one hour, uh, whereas in the US, the average project size is 23 uh, hours um, and in places like California where you're taking uh, using battery storage to provide uh, what's called uh, local capacity or resource adequacy uh, so that's ensuring that at peak times electricity uh, is reliable and is supplied as it should be uh, you're talking four hour duration um, and so, yeah, so basically I think the reason why you've got these shorter duration batteries in the UK is that shorter duration is cheaper, uh, but also it means that you can still provide a lot of the uh, network services for balancing, um, such as frequency response with a shorter duration battery. And it's only when you get into storing, you know, bulk amounts of, of solar and wind, um, that you start to need these longer duration uh, batteries. So it'll be interesting to see if the UK kind of starts to see that need and starts to answer that need in uh, in the months and years to come. But for now, that's uh, that's one thing I'm seeing certainly. It's um it's quite an interesting point with with the UK's trend kind of being still towards uh, 
kind of shorter duration batteries because I remember um, I think it was back in either t- 2018 and 2019 the government obviously um, launched this um, consultation around the EU or the kind of bidding of energy storage projects into the capacity market um, which for those of you outside of the UK is the way in which the system operator ensures it has sufficient capacity um, throughout the winter months. So um, energy generation projects can uh, bid for contracts to ensure they are um, able to generate at, at kind of those, during those winter months and they are paid their strike price for that. Battery storage projects were then allowed into uh, competing for that, but um, they were essentially derated based on their duration. So um, one hour and half hour duration batteries were, were penalized quite heavily. And at the time, the, the capacity market was quite an interesting market for a lot of battery storage operators. So there was this thought process that perhaps there could be this trend towards long, longer duration um, batteries. But kind of shortly after that, the value in the capacity market all just completely collapsed and the kind of settlement fees there were were really quite minimal to such an extent that the battery storage market in the UK just almost turned its back on the capacity market and moved towards frequency response, balancing mechanism and, and basically other sources that do not place such an importance on longer duration. Um, they are designed pretty much to procure batteries to address um, grid fre- uh, frequency events, which primarily last, I think the average is that the um, the kind of average grid frequency event lasts less than an hour. So you have this kind of big demand, which has been catered for through shorter duration batteries. It'll be interesting then in the future where if from a grid resiliency perspective, the UK does make that decision or, or that observation that they might need some more that kind of cut in between longer duration storage and seasonal storage, whether they can come up with a, whether it's a new market mechanism or a different way of procuring um, longer duration storage, which could incentivize a shift towards longer duration batteries. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You're absolutely right though. Yeah. Because there's been a recognition that, you know, it's, you just can't go to much higher shares of renewable energy uh, without longer duration systems, you know, and so there's a lot of discussion about how we define longer duration, but I think broadly speaking, it's kind of between, or long duration rather, is between kind of eight and 12 hours um, of storage. Um, and longer duration is kind of more than that, but, you know, it's quite, quite vague terms and at this stage, relatively interchangeable. Um but certainly the UK is kind of recognising that it will need that longer duration storage, um, but we don't yet know if there'll be anything in between. So what was quite interesting about the Energy Information Administration report that I mentioned from the US um, was that one of the drivers for the longer duration batteries in the US is that uh, battery energy capacity, so that's kind of megawatt hours and gigawatt hours, uh, is getting cheaper. So that's what I referred to as in the costs of fallen 72% sure. between 2015 and 2019. Power capacity has remained relatively flat. So it's meant that you can do a 
project of probably the same amount of power in megawatts, but with more megawatt hours to it. So that's kind of been a bit of a driver there in terms of the cost reduction. You know, we always hear that cost reduction is the big driver for a lot of these adoptions of these technologies. And certainly that is the case there. But, you know, I mean, kind of looking much further forward, I would say much further forward to the future, but actually uh, in terms of long duration storage, but long duration storage needs to happen within the next really three to five years for, I mean, if you just take in terms of climate targets to have any hope of sort of, you know, realistically getting close to meeting them. Um, you're going to need to have long duration storage being a very mainstream thing uh, within the next probably five years at absolute most. Um, and, you know, just on that note, we've reported quite a few interesting developments in that space. So Ambry, which makes uh, liquid metal batteries uh, based on uh, molten sodium, I want to say, and antimony. No, no, I've got that wrong. Calcium, molten salt electrolyte, and calcium alloy anodes, and solid antimony particles. There's liquid calcium, molten salt, and uh, solid antimony particles. Uh, so that company, um, which I believe the biggest shareholder in it is Bill Gates, actually, um, received a $144 million uh, investment commitment, uh, which is which is pretty big. I mean, it's not the billions that are getting thrown into oil and you know, whatever, sure. uh, but it's, it's still on the order of, you know, more than a lot of the developers that are deploying things downstream are getting. So Ambry is is one of them. Uh, they signed a deal uh, for their antimony uh, to come from a mine in Idaho. Uh, so they've got access to 13 gigawatt hours worth of, of battery systems worth of that uh, raw material. Um, there has been um, a compressed air energy storage company called Hydrostore um, has netted some growth capital uh, about... 8 million US dollars, or the Canadian company, so it's actually 10 million Canadian. Uh, there's been more talk about pumped hydro projects. So there's a lot going on. Um, the you know, There's a lot of different technologies. I think the one that perhaps is most commonly talked about is vanadium flow batteries. And, and over this month, I've been so privileged to be able to talk to uh, not only a couple of vanadium producers um, and a couple of industry analysts, uh, but also to uh, Maria uh, Skylas Kazakos, who is one of the or one of the main inventors of the vanadium flow battery from the University of New South Wales, um, and you know it's been such a fascinating uh, interview to have done because you know a lot of the stuff we talk about is very technical and you know scientific, academic. Of, of course, it is, and you know clearly economic and market based. But it's just really interesting to hear her point of view that, you know, it's something they developed in the early 1980s and it was kind of like no one would really listen. And she was saying that a lot of electricity market uh, industry folks that she spoke to over the years were kind of like, well, what do we need batteries for? You don't need to store electricity. Uh, and it just, you know, even without renewables, it seems kind of crazy that you've got this uh, this global industry that, feels like it doesn't need any inventory of its goods whatsoever uh just feels feels kind of nuts and you know for years 
Maria Scholas Kazakos was saying it was kind of like banging her head against a brick wall and she kind of became frustrated and sort of decided to, to focus just more on the pure research side of things. So despite some early industry interest and, you know, that, that early interest moved quite rapidly and then kind of came to a standstill. And fast forward till uh, about 2006 when the original patents um, uh, expired uh, and you've got a tremendous interest in vanadium flow batteries now. So that's been such a fascinating interview and, and piece to work on. So again, that will be in PV Tech Power uh, Volume 28 out in a couple of weeks and we will be publishing uh, some extracts on the website. So there's a lot to, a lot to see uh, within the, uh, the long duration energy storage space. And while it's been for a long time really exciting to cover it as kind of a, a sort of futuristic proposition, it, it's time kind of has to be now. And, uh, you know, one thing that's interesting is that a lot of people are making bets on which technology it will be. But if you talk to the providers themselves, they hope it will kind of be an all of the above kind of thing because, you know, vanadium alone probably won't be able to do it. There's a lot of promising zinc batteries, but they alone won't be able to do it. Uh, pumped hydro and compressed air is very site specific. You need to have the right sort of uh, geographical and even geological uh, conditions to do them. Um, so yeah, so they don't really see themselves in competition with each other. Um, as has been said to me before, uh, the real competition is fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's a good enough note to end this episode on um there's nothing left for for me to do but to just run over a bit of what we have coming up um like andy mentioned we are publishing pv tech power volume 28 in the coming weeks so that will be out um if you're already a subscriber um it will hit your inboxes as soon as we hit publish which like I said, will be in the next week or two. If you aren't already a subscriber, then head on over to pv-tech.org forward slash pv-tech-power and you can get your subscription ready. Um, elsewhere, um, across the Soda Media portfolio, um, coming up, we have a number of events. So starting next week is PV Cell Tech, one of our uh, most renowned events, personally one of, one of my favourites as a bit of a well, just a bit of a geek around. So the technology is really not to be missed. Um, that is available virtually, and you can head on over to celltech.solarenergyevents.com for all of the information on how to attend that event. Um, and likewise, um, coming up shortly is our Entech event. Um, you can head on over to entech.solarenergyevents.com for all the information there, and I believe there's a special offer um, at the moment, so you can um, bag yourself a bronze ticket for free. Um, and we also are in a position to offer a 20% discount for um, all of our podcast listeners uh, this month. You can get a 20% off a silver or a gold ticket by using the code podcast at the checkout. Um, but that is pretty much it from us this month, Andy. Any, any lasting notes to end on? Uh, do we get a commission on those podcast tickets? Uh, I hope so. I'll, 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 def, I'll, I'll raise it, and we can maybe we can maybe use it use that budget to stretch towards a. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll record a couple of podcasts on on location somewhere. I know there's a couple of decent sized projects in uh, in the Caribbean, and maybe we could stretch a visit. To. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes, eh? If if any Saudi media management are listening, that's what we want. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Uh, yeah, no, I mean, nothing else really from me. Just that, you know, once again, it's been a really exciting month of, uh, in terms of the industry stuff that we cover. So, yeah, please do visit PV Tech and Energy Storage news sites. Uh, it can be a little bit, uh, I guess, disheartening, maybe the right word, or, or worrying, I guess, to look out into the world and see what's going on. Um, but definitely, I think, I think doing what you can is a definite antidote to climate despair if nothing yeah. else. 100%. Perfect. Well, I will leave it there and there's nothing left for me to do, but thank you for listening and we we'll hope to see you next time.